Have you ever looked at someone else's walk with Christ and wondered why they seem to have a closer relationship with Jesus than you do? Have you ever done that? Early in my walk with Christ, I tried to improve my relationship using performance. Maybe you're like me. Most of me trying to please the Lord came from my own works. I grew up in a home where you had to earn love and respect. And so it seemed so natural to me that that's how I had to earn dad's love as well. I had to earn it. I had to somehow prove to him that I was good enough. I thought my prayer life should come from a specific list. And I had to be sure that I didn't miss anything or anyone on this list or otherwise dad would not be happy with me. I used formulas, hoping to come to know the Lord better. But can I just tell you a secret? Nothing I tried seemed to draw me closer to God whatsoever. Catch this. Christians, we need a vibrant prayer life. And we should study the word to get to know the Lord. But using formulas and rituals will never, ever earn us a real intimate relationship with God. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 5 as we continue in that verse by verse study. Just a real quick recap this morning because there's a lot of ground to cover. Last week we met a man who was demon possessed by many demons and Jesus went and set him free. And after the man was healed, his response was, Jesus, take me with you. I, wherever you are, I want to be. But Jesus said, oh, no, that's not how this works. I want you to go home and tell your friends and your family about Jesus. So today we're going to learn about some of the miracles that Jesus performs when he gets back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to learn this. Here's the key to having a closer relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have your sermon notes, Roman numeral one, celebrity status. Celebrity status, if your Bibles are open, Mark chapter five, let's begin with verse 21. The word of God says, now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and catch this and thronged him. So after the storm they encountered, they get to the other side. Jesus cast out all these demons into the swine. And now Jesus and the disciples Go back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And as soon as they land there, a huge crowd is waiting. What are they doing there? Well, some have come to see the miracle worker. Some needed healing. But there's others that are there that are angry that Jesus was breaking the Mosaic law by healing all these people. But all of them, every single person there is pushing their way in to see Jesus. In this same narrative in Luke 8, 42, we're told that as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Again, thronged him. There in your notes. 
According to Vine's Expository Dictionary, throng means to press around or to throng one as almost to suffocate him. Imagine what they're doing here. Here's a crowd. We don't know how big the crowd is, but I'm guessing thousands. Jesus comes off this little tiny fishing boat and they're pressing in, suffocating the Savior just so we could get near Jesus. Then all of a sudden Jairus shows up. Here's a ruler of the synagogue. This is a guy, by the way, high prestige, rich man. And he comes, he finds Jesus, falls at his feet and begins to worship Jesus. Wearsby said this about him. Being a ruler of the synagogue meant that you were in charge of the services there and the care of the facilities. And by the way, those who occupied that position were usually men of reputation and wealth. Reputation and wealth. Here's a little tidbit that it was so neat to me. Jairus was a leader of the synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus had previously healed a man with a withered hand in Mark chapter 3. You may remember the story. In Mark 3, after Jesus healed this man, by the way, it was on a Sabbath day in the synagogue, the religious leaders then sought to destroy Jesus. The religious leaders. Who's Jairus? Jairus was a religious leader. Mark 3, 5 said, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. But here, here's this religious leader. Here was a guy that was kind of leading the charge to destroy Jesus just a few chapters back for healing on the Sabbath day. But now he's desperate. His daughter is dying and no one has the answer. And so Jairus is so desperate. Luke 12 and at the end of this chapter, Mark also tells us she was only 12 years old. So his 12 year old daughter is dying. In fact, she's at the point of death right now and he's desperate. Here's the point there in your notes. When religion or life fails us to the point that we can no longer handle it, it should compel us to be desperate and go to Jesus. When your religion can't do it anymore and you can't figure it out on your own in life, run to Jesus. Desperation takes away all those preconceived ideas. You know, my God lives right here and my God can only because I say so. But when worthless religion and trying to earn dad's favor, all those things no longer work. You become desperate and all you can do is fall on your face and worship the God of heaven. And in desperation, Jairus doesn't care what anybody else thinks. He doesn't care about his reputation. He doesn't care about his standing in the community. All I care about is my 12-year-old little girl is dying and I need Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He's so touched by the worship. He's so touched by this man's desperation that he actually goes with him and goes to his house. Number two, a desperate idea. Look at verse 25. Now, a certain woman had a blood flow of 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. 
For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I should be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing within himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So right in the middle of this crazy scene, we meet a second desperate person. And by the way, her issue's been going on for 12 years. 12 years, this woman has seen all the specialists out there. 12 years, she spent all her money. 12 years, she sought help from everybody. Nothing worked. So she finds her way to Jesus. Now, the Greek lexicon tells us that her blood flow was an issue of menstrual bleeding. And so if you go back to the law, in Leviticus 15, she should be considered unclean. And that may not sound like a big deal, but in their day, it was a huge deal. She was considered unclean, so she couldn't go to church. She couldn't go to temples, couldn't go to synagogue, couldn't be around her kids, couldn't be around her husband, couldn't be around anybody, as a matter of fact. And so this is a big deal. Twelve years of being isolated. Twelve years of this affliction. Twelve years considered an outcast. There in your notes. The woman was isolated from her family, society, and from worshiping the Lord publicly for 12 full years. And again, the Gospel of Luke says the same thing, that she spent all her money on doctors and they couldn't find a cure. She was physically, emotionally, spiritually, and socially broken. She's hopeless. And so Jesus is her last resort. Can I tell you something? What a great last resort to have, right? And so I asked myself this question this week, and I'm going to ask you too, is how many people do we see in the world today that spend all their time, all their energy, all their money on trying to find peace and become whole? And yet they can't. They can't find any peace. They can't find any joy or healing. Notice this there in your notes, Mark 5, 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. The woman found Jesus because somebody told her about Jesus. Hey, there's a thought. You see, when we see somebody in desperate need, you know, early on in my Christian walk, my first, my first thought was just grab your wallet, right? I mean, that's the first thought. You see someone in desperate need and you think that the wallet's going to heal the issue. And sure, we can help the people financially, no doubt about it. And we should at times, depending on how the Lord tells us. But what they really need, what every person in the world needs, no matter if they have financial need or not, is Jesus. There in your notes, the word touch means to fasten oneself to, adhere to, or cling to. The woman clutched Jesus' garment. And it didn't just grab on because she wanted to grab on. She grabbed on believing if I can simply touch his garment, I'm going to be healed. She believed Jesus actually had the ability. And we'll get more into that in a minute. But before we move on to the next point, I want to give you some 
contrast here between the two people. Two people in the story. Jairus had experienced 12 years of joy with his daughter by his side. Think about this. 12 years earlier, baby girl's born here. What a joyous occasion. 12 years of enjoying his daughter. 12 years earlier, though, this woman, her suffering began. And it's gone on for a full 12 years. When her blood flow problem began, it was absolutely miserable for her. Two people contrasted, but they both need Jesus. All right, so Roman numeral three, her desperation worked. Again, look at verse 29. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But again, the disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, and here's the key, daughter. There it is, the relationship. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Remember again, the enormous crowd that's there enormous thousands and they're all thronging they're all pressing in they're all suffocating Jesus and they touched Jesus but here's the difference they did not touch him believing that he would heal them they simply wanted to get close there in your notes desperation drove this woman to cling to Jesus and notice as soon as she touched Jesus she was healed instantly and again notice Jesus said who touched me Jesus, the Son of God, is all-knowing. And here's one of those occasions where we see both parts of Jesus, fully God and fully man. He knows very well who touched him, but he said these words for everyone else that's standing around. Who touched me? He knew who touched him. But then I love how the disciples try to correct him, right? Jesus, all these people around, and you ask, but you know what I like better? Because maybe you don't need this, but I do is the patience Jesus shows with these disciples. I mean, Jesus could have just said, hey, bozos, listen, right? <laughs> the master knew the woman had touched the edge of his garment. And right at that moment, this mighty miracle occurred, and he knew. You see, the woman knew Jesus had the power to heal. But Jesus then wants her to know him personally. It's more than a healing. You know, we're all wrapped up in with, does God heal today? Does God always heal? Does God not heal? And we get all wrapped up into this. This life is a dress rehearsal for eternity. The healing here is not the important thing. The important thing is the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes God chooses to heal. Sometimes even with the Apostle Paul, thorn in the flesh, he does not heal. And we, we go, why? I don't know. I'm not God. When you meet him, ask him that question. But... The healing wasn't the important thing in this whole story. The important thing was come to know him personally. But catch this, and this really affected me this week. Our Lord Jesus was not ashamed to be touched by the untouchable. He was not embarrassed to be publicly identified with the outcasts of the world. Why is that important? Because in the Lord's economy, there are no untouchable people. There are no outcasts. God doesn't make mistakes. And Jesus loves her. 
But notice the woman's response, fear and trembling. And you could kind of understand it, right? I mean, yes, she has faith, but then she's thinking, you know, this was the God of heaven, and I just kind of presumed myself upon him and touched him without permission. But Jesus' response, daughter, your faith has made you well. Fear and trembling to daughter. Daughter is a term of endearment. And it's probably, by the way, the same term that Jairus used of his daughter. The story of two daughters. Daughter, go. Your faith has made you well. And in the meantime, Jairus is sitting there going, hmm, what's going on here? Remember my daughter? Remember she's dying over here? We were on our way. What happened? There in your notes. But Jesus was claiming this woman as his own special child. And so he's on the way. Heal this girl. This unclean woman comes up, touches him. And I can just, like I said, hear Jairus, what about my daughter? You've stopped. Are you going to be late? Is she going to be dead? What's going to happen? And I wonder, this is the question I had for myself. Have you ever asked yourself, why does it seem that God seems to hear everybody else's prayer but mine? Why does it seem that God answers everybody else but me? God, it's not fair. Why is everyone else so full of joy in their walk with Christ and I'm so miserable? Why, God? Why have you done this? But I want you to notice something. This woman's faith made her well, not her touching Jesus. And so you go, what's so important about that? Well, let me give you just a small lesson on faith. And we don't have time to go into an extensive lesson on faith. But faith boils down to this. Believing what God said would happen will happen. If God said it's going to happen, we believe it, we trust it. That's called faith. Faith is not some mystical, magical force that we get to create. We get to speak into existence. Real faith will move us towards Jesus Christ. And real faith trusts the Lord Jesus Christ. However, I want you to notice this, and this is so cool about Jesus. Because maybe you find yourself in this same situation. I know I do. Her faith was not perfect. She had fear. Even after she knew God healed her, she still got fear. She had perfect faith. There is no fear in perfect love. Perfect love casts out fear, 1 John tells us. So her faith wasn't perfect. And I thought about that for me. Isn't that awesome? When my faith fails, he doesn't. He who is faithful and he will do it, First Thessalonians tells us. Her faith was not perfect. But God answered her anyway. And he tells her, go in peace as he makes her whole. That is fantastic. There in your notes, you can spend all of your money, all of your time, and all of your peace trying to be whole. But if you don't make your way to Jesus, you will never know true peace. We have to know and trust that Jesus is the only way. And by the way, he's the only way to salvation, too. We're told over and over again, Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved. So a 12-year-old story of two desperate people, a desperate dad, a desperate woman, and Jesus allows both of them, and here's the key, to get to the end of their own resources so that they have to call out to him. 
No matter how weak your faith is this morning, saint, make your way to Jesus. No matter how weak the faith of a mustard seed, the smallest measure in the Jewish economy, the faith of a mustard seed. If you got that much faith, make your way to Jesus. He's got the answers. Kyle Eidelman said this. Reaching the end of me is a daily journey. I must make because it's where Jesus shows up and my real life begins. Jesus said in Luke 9 that whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will gain life. The end of me is where I find peace and joy and the abundant life. You can't have peace and joy and the abundant life with you on the throne of life. It does not work. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 11:6 says, But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must first believe that he is, and then believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently, that's dog on a bone, seek him. And again, faith is not some mystical force. Alistair Begg put it this way there in your notes. Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and also receiving and resting in him alone for salvation. So the woman in our narrative touched Jesus, and the word again, remember, it means to fasten to, adhere to, or cling to. It's not enough to intellectually know that a Jesus Christ existed in history. We have history books that no one can refute. I mean, Josephus even talks about Jesus walking the face of the earth. It's not enough to say, I know there was a Jesus once upon a time. Intellectual belief doesn't do it. You must grab onto Jesus like you really believe it and know that he's the only way. And so Jesus cares enough to meet this woman's need. But just then, some bad news comes. And Roman numeral four Another daughter gets healed. Look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. So notice, Jesus gets this bad report. He hears the news, and the first thing out of his mouth is, Hey, don't fear. J just believe. Don't fear. Believe. There in your notes, belief and trust go hand in hand. It's not enough, again, to have an intellectual belief about God. Our faith moves us towards him. And then notice, he only lets his inner circle of the three go with him. And you've got to ask yourself, why? There's three occasions this happens, that only these three got to go with him. Here at the raising of Jairus' daughter. Again at the Mount of Transfiguration. And then finally in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so many wonder, is it because Peter, James, and John are Jesus' favorite guys? Is that why he only allowed them? What if the real reason is this? 
What if the real reason is these three aren't the favored ones, but these three had a lot to learn? Maybe it's both. Maybe they're favored ones and had a lot to learn. I like to go with that one. But you, you think about it. Peter constantly stuck his foot in his mouth, right? Constantly said outlandish things, constantly did things trying to help the Lord out. How many of us have tried to help the Lord out before in life? How'd that work out for you? <laughs> Times I've tried to help the Lord out, it didn't work out as well as I hoped. But then James and John were constantly telling Jesus, make us number one and two in your kingdom. We want to be promoted as the best. So you got this foot and mouth guy and you got these other two guys that are always seeking promotion. And Jesus says, you three, come with me. As we read the other accounts of these men later, though, it's a different story, right? So think about Peter after Acts 2 at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. He gives his first sermon of his life. Here's a guy who can't even speak good. You know, well, English teachers. Okay, you got it. Good. All right. But here's a guy that can't even, you know, publicly speak that well. And he gets up and gives his first sermon. And 3,000 people are added to the church right then. What a difference between a carnal man and a spirit-filled man. How about in Acts chapter 9? Peter goes and Tabitha has died. And they call Peter, no one else can do it, Peter, you got to come. And Peter goes and throws everyone out just like Jesus did here. And he raises Tabitha back to life. Monkey see, monkey do. His mentor showed him, right? But here Jesus arrives at the house and there's this large crowd of mourners there. And Jesus proclaims, hey, she's not dead. She's just mostly dead. She's just sleeping. Those of you who know Princess Bride got that. Good for you. <laughs> but there's these people and they're already mourning the girl's death. See, in a Jewish culture, professional mourners would be hired to mourn people's death. Even poor people would at least hire a couple of flute players and one mourner. But remember, Jairus is filthy rich. He's a powerful guy. And so he didn't just hire a couple of mourners. He hired a bunch of mourners. And you see, sometimes these professional mourners could carry out the grief that maybe publicly we can't. And so you needed somebody to kind of grieve the child. And, and notice the reaction of the mourners when Jesus said, hey, she's simply sleeping. They ridiculed Jesus. In the King James Version of Matthew 9, 24, same account, it says, and they laughed him to scorn. They laughed him to scorn. Just imagine what they're saying. Check this out, Jesus. We, we hear great things about you and, and you're awesome and all that. But we have mourned hundreds of people's death. We know when someone's dead. And let me tell you, brother, she's dead. She's not mostly dead. And, and so they're mocking Jesus. His fame has gone out. He's cast out demons. He's healed all these people. He's calmed a storm. And now he's in this home of this distraught father. And these mourners are like, Jesus, let it go. You're a little late. And as Jesus walks in again, the friend informs him, your daughter's dead. But Jesus says, don't fear, only believe. You know, I won't tell you all the gory details, but a couple of years ago, I had one of these situations in my own life. I was over certain in the flesh that life was over for one of my loved ones. And as I was distraught, distraught is not even a word, 
I've been walking with the Lord since I was 15 years old. And that's like 15 years ago. (laughs) I am not one of these guys who says, I hear God every other day, right? I'm not that guy. In my 40 years of walking with the Lord, there's been a handful of times, handful, where I could say, I know that I know that I know God said, and I'm moving. This is one of those times, and I remember like it was yesterday. This doesn't take her life. And I was like, two o'clock in the morning, dressed, ready to go to the hospital, thinking I'm about to lose my loved one. Was sure of it. And I heard those words. And in that moment, I had one of these moments. What are you going to do? Do not fear, only believe. And you know what? I believed. And I just sat there and went, okay, you said it, God, I believe it. Praise God. It was God's voice. So why does Jesus ask these mourners to leave? This is the story. This is what we got to ask. Maybe Jesus doesn't want to cast his pearls before swine. Or maybe... He doesn't want to make entertainment out of miracles. Think about that. That's kind of heavy. Or maybe by clearing the room of all this anxiety and all this noise and all that stuff, there can be peace and quiet and stillness. And this young girl can hear. I don't know. But there in your notes, when a person has unbelief in their heart, it's hard for them to see miracles when they occur. Only five people got to witness this miracle. Jairus, his wife, Peter, James, and John, and of course, Jesus. Look again at verse 41. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, and she was 12 years of age, And they were overcome with great amazement, but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. Talitha Kumi, again, is a term of endearment. It means little lamb. Think about this. Calls the other woman daughter, calls her little lamb. There in your notes. The good shepherd said to this little girl, my little lamb, I say unto you, arise with words of incredible love and power. And notice, it's so crazy that Jesus says, see that nobody knows this. In Matthew, we're told that this story went out throughout all the land. Of course it did. How can you have a story of a little girl who was dead, not mostly dead, but dead, come back to life and no one's going to hear about it? Everyone's going to hear about it. Luke 8, 56 said her parents were astonished. I bet they were. And hear, hear this. You want to know how to spread Jesus? Here's the thing. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead in my sins and trespasses, but Jesus made me alive. And I don't have to tell people that, right? People who know me can look on my life and go, yeah. Yeah, you know, some of my freshman high school teachers would go, boy, howdy. Let me tell you. There's been a change in that guy, right? When people see dead men and women come to life in Christ, they're going to want what you got. They're just going to. So let's get practical this morning. First lesson, of course, is that we should tell somebody about Jesus. And when we don't have words, show them. Demonstrate the faith 
that we have faith in the one who hung the moon and the stars and calls them by name. We have faith in that one. And I started with the question, have you ever looked at someone else's walk and wondered why they have a closer relationship with Jesus than you do? And again, I grew up believing that you had to earn love. You had to earn respect. So it seemed natural to approach God that way. But I want to concentrate on a couple of differences here between the crowd and the woman who had the faith, as well as Jairus and the mourners there at the house. There in your notes. Although Bible studies, prayer, regular church attendance and obedience can be tools to develop a closer relationship with God, these things can also become works of performance. Performance-based relationships, let me tell you a secret, they're based on duty and manipulation. We think because we have done so good for God, then he owes us something. And that's stinking thinking, I think, in the Greek. A love relationship is based just upon that, love. And we love him because he first loved us. We're incapable of loving him without him first loving us. And it's based on a grateful heart for all that he has done. He gives us these incredible gifts, eternal salvation, and all these other things. And it's not based on anything that I did. It's based on the cross of Christ and what he did for me. And so as we close, I've got a few things to tell you about how we can worship out of a response. John 4.24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him two ways, in spirit and in truth. There, there's two distinct ways there. A closer relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ begins with knowing who Jesus really is. And then we worship him in spirit and in truth. Our love and passion for Jesus Christ should invade everything about our lives. Our worship is to be led by the Holy Spirit, but we're also to worship him the way his word reveals, right? Think about this. John 17, 17, Jesus said to the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You see, here's what he's trying to say. We don't get a God of our own making. We don't get to make God. He made us. And to worship God in truth means that we must worship him the way he has revealed himself in his word. When a person does something that's not normative in scripture, we're not worshiping God in truth. The Bible very clearly tells us his attributes, you know. He's present everywhere. He's all powerful, all knowing, sees the future. But he's full of grace and mercy and love and all those things. There in your notes. We should desire the expression of our heart in worship to look like what is recorded in the scriptures regarding worship. Expressing what's in our hearts for the Lord in a way that's worthy of him. That's worshiping him in spirit. Worshiping in spirit means we engage all of our being, all of our heart to worship him. David said that great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. David was speaking of the greatness of God and describes the reaction of anyone who comes to know God that way. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. I should praise him because who he is. So saying all that, growing closer to God 
is similar to growing in human relationships in some ways. And I want to point some things out. It's not based on duty, but there are some good habits we can do. Think about your human relationships. If they're going to grow and thrive, then they have to be continually growing, correct? All right, so here's how we continue to grow and know the Lord more. As Christians, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ by studying his word. Now, I just said these aren't duties, right? This isn't obligations. These aren't rituals. When you know Jesus and you know who he is and how he's revealed himself in his word, the pages come alive. I can't tell you the amount of people who said, I've read that old archaic book and I, it's so dry. It's so empty. I get nothing out of it. Well, here, number one. First of all, you've got to be saved in order to have the Holy Spirit living in you so that as you read, it comes alive. And by the way, if you are saved and the word is dry to you, try this the next time. Before you put your nose in this, put your face on that and ask the Lord to reveal and give you the unction of the Holy Spirit that as you read, this stuff comes alive, comes off the pages and you're like, whoa, that's my Jesus. Number two. We should also spend time with him in conversation. And by the way, here you go. First, by listening. God gave you two of these and one of these. First, by listening. Right. And then telling him our concerns, our anxieties and our praises. Here's a popular one. We should always seek reconciliation with the Lord. Now, for all those who are going to say I'm a legalist, time out. I know at the moment of salvation... All my sins, past, present, and future, were wiped clean. My sins are gone. How long? Forever. My sins are gone. However, I'm going to use my son Mitch, who's over here this morning. Mitchell is my DNA. There's no getting around it. Boy looks like me, behaves like me. Can't blame his mama for that. (laughs) But if that boy comes up to me and kicks me in the shin. He's still going to be my son. But we got a problem. Same with the Lord. I am forgiven, completely forgiven. But you know what happens when I sin and and I do something against the Lord? God doesn't need me in begging him. What God wants is no rift in the relationship. And who puts the rift there? I do. Because the sin that's inside of me, my hardened heart, builds walls up. God hasn't moved. I've moved. So by keeping short accounts with him and telling him and having that fellowship and receiving his love and forgiveness all over again, positionally, I'm sinless. I'm perfect. But practically, I walk in the muck a little bit. How about you? And even though we're forgiven, we still keep short accounts. Number four, we should spend more time with like-minded Christians. We, we spend plenty of time. I know we must be a light unto the world. Absolutely. But we should spend some time with like-minded believers so that, you know, monkey see, monkey do sort of thing. And then number five, most of all, most important, we need to trust him. We need to trust him. Again, Hebrews eleven six. but without faith, it's impossible to please him because he who comes to God must first believe that he is And then believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently, dog on a bone, seek him. Again, faith is not some magical force or something I get to do or create. It's believing what the Lord said will happen 
will happen. You can go to the bank on it. And he loves us and he gave himself for us that we would have relationship with him. And I mean, if you really dwell on that thought, the one who created you, that then you turned around and rebelled against, then willingly came down off of his throne in heaven to grow up as a man and take the cross to fix and make reconciliation for what I've caused. Who would do that? What kind of love is that? And yet that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for anyone and everyone who would receive his free gift. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up. And this morning, just like every week, there's going to be some folks in the back. We would love to pray with you. And this morning, if you don't know my Jesus and you're carrying around this heavy guilt and this heavy shame and you're constantly hearing about Jesus, but you've never crossed over past that duty, past that I've got to and just received his grace as a gift. I would love I would count it a privilege to talk to you. And I would count it a privilege to lead you to his throne this morning and and introduce you to my Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithklamath.com. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed.